Hello and welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today we're delighted to have Hamish Grierson, CEO of Thriver on the podcast. Thriver is a proactive healthcare company based here in London. So welcome Hamish. Great to be here James. Yeah, thank you very much indeed for inviting me along. It's a great honour. No problem. So can you explain where your career started and give us a run through to how you got from there to where you are today? Yeah, no, happily. I think the first thing uh, on reflection uh, that I would note is if there is a formulaic path to this kind of stuff, I don't think I've taken it. Uh, I did international politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, fascinated as I was then and as I am now by the dynamics of international politics and uh, of power more broadly. That led me out of international politics. It left me feeling like I didn't want to do that. I tried to get into the world of advertising for uh, a little while. And um, I've told this story a few times, but I might be one of the first people uh, to ever be made redundant before they ever started work. It was such a cool job. I, was, I, I still am a bit gutted. I, I never got to do it. Uh, so it was managing, from an advertising perspective, the Nissan Extreme Sports account. I'm a bit of yeah. a, an extreme sports nut and therefore was very excited. And uh, I think it was the case that the entire company got an email saying, there is a recruitment freeze as I was being made the offer in the interview. And then I, they obviously didn't know. And I walked out and later that day got a phone call and said, I'm really sorry, I didn't have to tell you this, but um, there is no job. But then I did work in and around advertising for a couple of years. I was helping to build a, a barter network right at the dawn of uh, the mobile era when advertising space was starting to show up in mobile apps in particular it sounds ridiculous now but it was um advertisers you know they were buying tv and bus sides and out of home and they just didn't have a often they didn't even have a team they some people would have like a two-person mobile team uh, and having done that for a little while I've always had a, a bit of a streak of wanting to change things that I saw were, were, were pretty broken. So in parallel to all of that, I was trying to get a, an electronic receipts business off the ground called ePop. I had no idea about fundraising, had very little network, didn't come from that world and learned some amazing lessons about the value of all of those things and uh, fundamentally failed to get that business off the ground. I got so frustrated with walking out of Sainsbury's, which as a student, I would go to twice a day because, you know, forward planning on the shopping front was not a thing. And I'd walk out with these, you know, reams of paper receipts. And this was also the dawn of the environmental movement. And I was just convinced that there must be a better way to do this and there is a better way to do it and uh someone i I now consider a friend is running a business launched that business and is running it uh, a brilliant entrepreneur called um, alexander uh, kaiser so yeah then with my brother and my now wife launched a skiing business in the french alps called ski neon and um ran that for a season actually that was quite successful we pretty much sold out for the year certainly learned a lot of lessons about scalability and just what happens when you sort of really intertwine your own personality into the fabric of a business turns out that oftentimes that isn't very scalable but it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun no regrets about that Uh, and then I was very fortunate I got onto a program that was just starting at the time called the New Entrepreneurs Foundation and it's an incredible charity and its purpose is really straightforward it's designed to make young entrepreneurs better young entrepreneurs to increase the chances of their um, succeeding in whatever it is that they wanted to do the way that the program works is it takes a pool of usually about 30 entrepreneurs a year and then they are placed in 
side, very entrepreneurially spirited companies of lots of different sizes from, you know, five person startups to international conglomerates. But, you know, those businesses still being very entrepreneurially spirited, as I say. And I was very lucky to end up at a business called Travelet. I was just incredibly lucky. I was working under a management team that put a lot of faith in me. And as a consequence, I got to launch businesses in lots of different countries and then run them with PL responsibility. I got to cut my teeth as a product manager, launched a satellite office in East London, working for the CEO. So there was just a lot of brilliant exposure for getting to go and do that. And I was there for four and a half years. And I suppose the other thing that happened alongside all of that was I developed a real passion for all things uh, sort of health and well-being and started to play around with the things at everyone's disposal that can increase the amount of energy that you have or how strong you feel, how much resilience you carry. And that, I suppose, was one of the reasons that I ended up in a conversation with one of my my two business partners at Thriver. And I guess to to round out the picture as to how Thriver started, uh, I was working with Elliot, uh, Elliot Brooks, who uh, is Thriver's uh, COO and one of my two co-founders, as I say, at TravelX. And he was getting regular blood testing done. And I was curious to understand a bit more about that, didn't know anyone uh, who was getting testing done regularly. And he was doing it to manage a condition. And the conversation eventually sort of turned to the fact that he just never really, he never really ended up with the information, right? He never got his own data. He was never empowered to think about the information in its own way for its own good. That struck both of us over the course of several conversations as pretty outdated. And alongside this conversation between myself and Elliot, this new industry was really catching fire which was led by the wearable technologies that we're all now very familiar with, the Fitbits and the Jawbones and what then became the, you know, the Apple Watches. And there was, on the one hand, this very clear, uh, very human desire to want to understand more about our bodies. And on the other, there was this piece of data that was completely absent from most people's lives. And that was, well, what's actually happening inside our bodies? Most people don't know. They just, they, they don't have any way to access it. And we had the idea that that was wrong and that you could create a way for people to inexpensively and without needing to be medically trained get access to to some regular insights to be able to know what to do next and uh you know we were not technologically focused we weren't engineers by background myself and Elliot and we realized that we were going to be a technology business and we were incredibly lucky that just at the time that we were starting out we happened to hear that a chap called Tom Lizzie, who is our CTO and uh, the third co-founder, was finishing up with, uh, with another business and he happened to be kind of looking for his next project. And over a few pints at the pub, as is often the case, we realized, A, we really got on and still do to this day. And B, had a real passion for the same sort of things. He'd been talking about an idea not dissimilar um, a few months back. So yeah, two became three. uh, And we went out to try and raise our first round of financing. And that's where it all started. I am a customer. And I know that I don't have enough vitamin D, as probably a lot of entrepreneurs in London have realized. But it's it's a great product and really interesting to democratize that information as well and have it accessible for the patient so you mentioned just there that you you then went out and started to look to raise why did you feel like you needed to raise money and then how did you start that process and go about it i should start by by saying my answer to this is perhaps you know with hindsight not what you're necessarily expecting and i have over the course of the last four and a half five years in particular arrived at the conclusion that the vast 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 majority of businesses that start uh, 
are spectacularly unsuited or ill-suited to venture capital, the vast majority. And yet the dominance of uh, venture capital in the innovation community more broadly is singular. If you're starting a business, the first thing you think about doing, the first thing that anyone talks about is raising money. There is a, a, I think, a very powerful correlation to ambition. You know, if you are ambitious, you want this to be a big thing and a successful thing. And how do you do that? Well, you raise money and uh, you can move more quickly. And I, I came to the conclusion over the course of a great many conversations and many pitches to, to venture capitalists, you know, I'm now very clear on what, uh, what VCs are looking for. So to, as I said, to answer your question, uh, on the one hand, you know, we set out to raise money because we we believed that we were the type of business that needed to be venture capital backed. And it proved to be the case, actually, even having developed the perspective that I have, I think we were absolutely right. We are a good candidate for venture capital. You know, we are disrupting something that is complex. It does require upfront investment that pays back over time. So there is a, there is a capital requirement to fund growth. And when we realized that, we, we went out to raise some money. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But just to round out the point, the, the reason I am a little frustrated by the, the dominance of venture in, in the mind's eye of most innovators is that it's paradoxically, I think, the case that if people starting businesses set their ambition on just starting and getting to, and I'll steal Kevin Kelly's view on this, you know, a thousand true fans and don't have venture capital in their way of thinking at that time and will learn a huge amount and probably it will be slower. And, you know, some businesses that suddenly find themselves in an arms race might have no choice but to immediately dive off and go and raise some money. But most businesses are. And by doing that, not not only have they learned a huge amount, they might well get themselves to a point of stability that means that actually when they then go out to raise money, they're raising from a completely different platform, right? It's less desperate, they know more. And I think the net of that is that the businesses that are then ready to take VC are more likely to succeed. And the businesses that were never right for VC have actually still been started really importantly and will continue to scale more slowly, but will still probably deliver a fantastic livelihood for the founders and a fantastic outcome for for the people who work there, how sad it would be if somebody didn't start something just because they thought it couldn't be the size of Facebook. Oh, well, it's not. It's only ever going to be a million customers. Or it's only ever going to be a hundred thousand customers. Well, the thing is, if you just don't start something, the one guarantee is that if something suddenly changes, and you could have been in that race, right? And now that race is red hot, and everyone's flying, and everyone's caught the rising tide. But you didn't start it because it wasn't going to be Facebook. That's absolutely tragic, right? And completely counter, I think, to the thing that VCs themselves are looking to create. It does come up a lot in, in the conversations that I have with early stage founders. So it's a really question. important opinion that is good to be shared with other founders in the space because you've been successful in fundraising. I would say someone sitting on the other side of the table at the moment, I've been on both sides of the table and I completely agree not every business should be raising capital or specifically venture capital. And yes, you know, venture has a, a fundamental and catalytic role to play for those businesses for whom it is well suited, Thriver being one of them. And we're incredibly lucky. We've got some fantastic backers uh, who really do see the business that we're trying to build. So what happened, I was uh, very fortunate. I got introduced to uh, a brilliant entrepreneur um, who had been sufficiently successful that he was then investing himself, uh, like you, James. 
And um, he said to me, I was still employed by Travelex at the time, look, you know, when you start something, you know, let's have a conversation. And I took him the idea of Thriver. And uh, after a few meetings, he committed to uh, putting in our first check. But as often is the case, he said, you know, for you guys to really have a run at this, you need this amount of runway. So I'll come in if you can put a round together of, uh, I think it was 150K. And um, it took some time to, to put that together. You know, we were all just going on whatever networks we had. None of us had kind of done this kind of fundraising before. So it took a number of months. And uh, by hook or by crook, we found ourselves in front of the seed camp partners, uh, Reshma and Carlos and a, a few of the other uh, advisory folks. Yeah, they, they, uh, they came in. And what was fantastic and certainly, you know, learned a lesson early, the validation that we got when seed camp came in, everyone else that we'd spoken to who was sort of, yeah, look, maybe call them up. Hey, seed camp, we're in. Are you in? we're in. So we managed to bring that round together really quickly uh, after Seedcamp committed. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And from there, yeah, you know, it was a, it was a tough road fundraising for the business in the first few years, because we were doing something that, you know, it didn't have really strong adjacency. It's not, you know, you know, this is already happening like this. We're just, we're just a slightly better version of it like that. And we were doing something that was breaking, uh, breaking some new ground, arguably solving a very common problem, right? People want to have better health, right? Sure. But we were doing it in a, in a novel way. And we were, you know, pretty, uh, pretty sort of first time style founders. Uh, so raising money was, yeah, it was a challenge, but we persevered and, you know, we got uh, 500 startups on board. We got lots of entrepreneurs on board, actually. That I think was one thing that really sort of kept us motivated and kept us, you know, kept the self-belief there. Uh, you know, we got Simon Franks and Alex Chesterman, the guys at uh, Love Film, and then Zoopler and Mel Kazoo, Paul Forster of Indeed.com, Tava Himricus of TransferWise. Th- these guys, you know, they grill you pretty hard, right? Because they know what questions to ask, because they, uh, they know where the dirt's hidden. And that's been fantastic because there have been times when we've been able to pop into Alex's office at Zoopler and say, hey, you know, we're thinking about this. What can you just give us a, a guiding hand on this one? Um, so it's been, it's been brilliant. And then we brought in our first two institutional investors after, well, I suppose Seacamp was the first, but these two were the, uh, the next big ones, Guinness Asset Management and Pembroke. And they helped us raise a 5 million Series A. That was last year. And we then decided to do a bridge round between our A and our B. And we were fortunate enough to bring in Target Global, who came into our, uh, our fundraising, when was it? Sort of April, May this year. Uh, so now we've got uh, our fourth institution on board. Uh, we've raised uh, about 10 million today. So we're, we're now in a uh, in a very lucky position. We've got some uh, fantastic backers on board. They are as ambitious as we are. They see they see the opportunity that we do, uh, and they're prepared to back us to to realize it. So yeah, it's been a it's been a process. So when you're pitching someone successful like Alex, are you doing pitch deck, phone call, meeting, another meeting? Are, are you doing a kind of like you would almost any other angel, or is it a warm intro? and so it's just a conversation how does that process go it's really varied i would honestly say the the difference between successful outcomes and unsuccessful outcomes i think it's less to do with whether it's an entrepreneur and much much more to do with how the introduction gets made and what the moment is in your journey where the connection is is, is happening 
And what I really mean by that is the hardest money you'll ever raise or the, the, the hardest ask you'll ever have is going out for the first commitment in a round, right? So I think if I could have my time again, I would have tried much, much, much harder to think about using a rifle rather than a shotgun. You've got two choices. Choice number one, you play the numbers. If you pitch a thousand people, one is going to invest. And the thing is, that's probably true, right? You're probably going to be pretty good at pitching by pitch number 483. Option number two is you pitch a hundred people and 10 invest because you've been really careful about figuring out who they've invested in previously, how that actually went, why they invested. Do they have a business interest from their own background that might make this particular thing interesting for them? What did they say on Twitter in the last month? Um, what did they post on LinkedIn? And here's the thing, right? There's a, I, I truly believe this, there's a good way to do it and there's a bad way to do it. The bad way to do it is to pitch a thousand people and the good way to do it is to pitch a hundred. And it's very simple as to why. Pitching a thousand, and I'm using round numbers, clearly it's more like pitch 10 or pitch a hundred. If you pitch a thousand people, you are going to be so bruised by the process of that rejection. And if you pitch a hundred, you're going to be a tenth as bruised. And the difference I suppose is very obvious. You know, on the one hand, you get to sit behind your computer doing a load of research and that takes more time, right? And then go out really like well-formed and honed and, and go at a particular pitch. Or you just go and bloody your forehead after, you know, you know, or bloody your forehead against wall after wall after wall. And um, I thought I was doing the, the latter, but actually in retrospect, I think I just didn't do anywhere near enough of that, of that fine tuning and honing in. And part of the, part of the reason that I think I got that wrong, and it certainly is a piece of advice I would give my younger self. You know, when you sit down with an investor, it's very easy to forget that this is a two-sided value exchange. It's not one-sided, right? You're sitting down begging, begging for money in your head. You're thinking about it the wrong way. You're not begging for money. You're giving them an opportunity. And the second you think about it like that, and you realize that, you know, you are on, you're on a level pegging with these investors, because if things go right, you're going to deliver them a fantastic return on their money, right? So you have every right to be asking them some pretty pointed questions about their views on things and how maybe they might actually help you. Just, it just transforms the dynamic. One last question and then we'll we'll go into a, a quick fire round how did you say look we're going to start in this area with these at home blood testing kits but our big vision is to do x and what was x and how did you tie vision and focus together to say you yeah, know we're this really exciting company in health tech well, I think I didn't do a very good job of it, actually, uh, is the honest answer, certainly for the first 18 months, because what people, you know, communication is what's heard, not what is said. So the saying goes, and what I was saying, I thought was painting a, a picture of what the future of health was going to look like and how we would play a part of it. But what people were hearing was, um, you're a subscription blood testing business. And that really wasn't what I was trying to get across, but I was clearly not doing a very good job of marrying those two things together. The first thing there and is that you had the awareness that you didn't want to just be seen as a subscription blood testing kit because that's what a lot of founders also do is they go I'm creating a subscription blood testing kit 
without necessarily considering, yes, this is where I want to start, but I've got a bigger vision. So, I mean, that's already step one that you knew that that wasn't the pitch, even though that was the product. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something. I, um, I had the great fortune to spend some time with one of the 500 startups mentors who actually ran the program that we went through called Diego. And he'd done this brilliant piece of research. I mean, truly brilliant piece of research, looking at the pitch process and, you know, where founders fall down. And it was, it was such an awakening um, going through, and I took him through our pitch deck at the time. And he said, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to tell you how the theory works. And then I'm going to show you how it maps to your, your presentation. And the number one thing, and it's, it's stage gated. So unless you get over stage one, stage two is irrelevant. Unless you get over stage two, stage three is irrelevant. And um, it's lots of data points. It's a really, it's a really good piece of research. Um, guess what step one is? Step one is this is going to be a massive fund returning size business, right? It's incredibly straightforward. Why is that number one? Well, the mechanics of venture capital necessitate it to be true, right? Whether you, whether you like the fact that, you know, one in 10 work or you don't, it's how they think, right? In almost every circumstance. Um, yeah. So unless you are able to get over the first hurdle, which is, hey, this is going to be a massive thing, nothing else matters. In fact, they've probably stopped listening. And all they've done now is found reasons to attack your business, um, which is very painful. Your LTV to CAC isn't strong enough. You're just, and, 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 and. You don't have any experience. You're, we've heard this about this, about that, about that. They're just looking for reasons to say no. So unless you are able to paint a very big picture from day one, even if you don't know exactly how you're going to get there, but spending time painting a picture of the future that you are going to create, I would honestly see, is, I, I, I cannot, again, if I could have my time again I would sit there slapping my younger self in the face until I understood that truth it's a good lesson for everyone thank you so much for taking the time where do people need to go if they want to engage with Thriver and become a customer James it's been my pleasure if you want to find Thriver we're at thriver.co that's t-h-r-i-v-a.co and if you'd like to get in touch uh, hello at thriver.co if you want to get in touch with me hamish at thriver.co we're at thriver health on twitter awesome well thanks again so much well hamish is an absolute legend and a very very strong founder so hopefully that came across and people got to learn a little bit about what it takes to build a vc-backed business uh thanks again for listening the next episode is with jonathan keeling from crowdcube where we discuss how to get into angel investing, crowdfunding, and the secondary market, which is a very exciting development in the funding and early stage investment space.